so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. True Christianity is no longer gladly accepted in America. Holding fast to what the Bible teaches is now labeled as bigotry and hate. Instead of backing down, though, Matt Chandler says this is an opportunity for believers to be salt and light. Listen now as we hear his talk, Take Heart, Christian Courage in the Age of Unbelief. Paid uh, 20 bucks, uh, I think is what it was, basically, to walk around the ruins of the Roman Empire. And so uh, we're walking around. We had a great guy that was kind of explaining to us, hey, when they sacked Jerusalem, uh, they took uh, the gold from the temple there and they actually used it to pay for the building of the Colosseum. And then years later, uh, when ultimately the elites in Rome were becoming Christians, they protested the games, stopped coming to the Colosseum that led to the shutting down of the Colosseum. And, and really what struck me while I was walking around uh, the Colosseum is that Rome, even to this day, is the greatest empire the world has ever known. I don't know how you would argue Otherwise, you're talking about an empire from India to England ruled the known world for 1,500 years. And so if you start thinking about uh, making America great again, Right, if you start thinking about our history and our, and I'm, man, I'm a military brat, proud of our heritage, but the United States is in diapers compared to uh, the expanse and power of the Roman Empire. And there was this window uh, in uh, Roman power where Christianity begins to grow, and Rome decided that it was a threat to their empire and set out to destroy us. And then here we are, all these years later. Me, a Christian from Dallas, paying 20 bucks to walk through their ruins. And so I was encouraged, but like crazy encouraged by that, that no matter what man throws at us, we're going to be all right. Now, I knew that theologically, but I could tangibly see it in front of me where, where the greatest empire the world's ever known set their face to destroy us as we grew 3% a year every year for 300 years. And, and so I was emboldened, and then I came home, and this 2016, so when I came home, it, it felt like the church in the U.S. was in panic mode, uh, all right? You, I mean, all of a sudden, Chick-fil-A is evil, right? You know, they're, they're, they're kind of oppressors of man. I mean, they make delicious chicken, but they are going to take the rights uh, of those who, who disagree with uh, kind of Judeo-Christian view of marriage and life and, and sex. And, and then we're nervous because now anybody can use any bathroom and we feel marginalized and we feel, uh, and there's some history in Rome that, that I think should 
help us. And, and so I wanna talk about kind of why we might be in panic mode right now, and then I wanna talk about why we should not be in panic mode right now, right? So I wanna explain why we feel anxious, and then I wanna tell you why we um, should, even in our anxiety, get our eyes up and rejoice and fear not. And so you, you and I, we feel, I mean, honestly, what we're feeling is we're in the twilight of what has been for most Christians, a seat at the table, a position of cultural power, and that predates us by over a thousand years. See, it was in 380 AD that Emperor Theodius I made Christianity the Roman Empire's official religion. And then 12 years later, he began to pass laws making it illegal to practice other religions and then began to implement a series of laws that had heavy taxes against those who would not conform to what we now know as Christendom. Uh, I don't mean taxes as in money. I, I mean that there were um, penalties for non-compliance. That's what I mean by taxes. So we saw uh, the, the church persecuted for the first 300 and something years. And, and this is fascinating to me. In 300 years, uh, a 3% increase almost every year for 300 years. And we have nothing historically in those, not a sermon, not a treaty, not a text on being evangelistic. Think about that. There's nothing about just the church loving one another, not devouring itself, supporting one another, practicing the one another's produced an environment that men and women were coming to Jesus Christ powerfully without any evangelistic training without any sermons on evangelism, without having to say, we need to evangelize, we need to evangelize, we need to evangelize. Just wanna argue that what we saw in those first 300 years is a consistent banging of the drum to get your eyes off of you and look at the glory of God. Look at the glory of God. And then men and women gazing upon the beauty of God are now compelled by the grace of God to live a particular way. Not because of drive-by guiltings, but because of the glory of God Scene. So, so we saw in this period of time a movement from the church from the margins to the society at its center. All of a sudden, uh, I mean, they were feeding us to lions and burning us alive and imprisoning us and all the things we read in Hebrews 11. And then all of a sudden, um, we're the, the bishop uh, of Rome. The, then all of a sudden, the... the um, you know, the seed, the emperor is going, hey, what do you think about this? How should I approach this? You know, what if we made it illegal for you to worship any other God? And some Christians are like, yeah, that's a good idea. No, that's a terrible idea. Gosh, with a Bible in your hand, that's a horrific idea. You can't force people to be regenerated, right? Uh, and then we saw uh, the creation and progressive development of a Christian culture or civilization, right? The assumption that all citizens are Christian by birth. Now, I, I don't know where you're from here in Dallas. I've told this story for years because it, it happened at our old red brick building. A man once told me he was a Christian because he was born in San Antonio. Now, I, I, love, if you're from, I love San Antonio, right? You've got the river walk there. You've got, it's a kind of a cool, kind of eclectic little um, city right in the heart of Texas, but, but nothing about being born there makes one a Christian. You see, there's still some of these vestiges, still some of this leftover silliness where people can be uh, assumed that they were born Christians, either because their parents were Christians or when they were six years old, mom and dad said something like this, would you like to come to heaven with us? Or would you like to burn in hell forever? Right? Well, heaven with you. Okay, well, let's get you baptized. Right, and we can count that as a number, maybe get him to rededicate as teenagers and count that number again. Is this too much? Do I need to bow out a little bit? Do I need to back off a little bit? It seems, maybe it's early, maybe I'm, yeah, or maybe I've had too much coffee. It just seems like people are like, I don't think you should say that. 
Okay, from, from here, the unity of church and state was established. Sunday became the official day of rest and mandatory church attendance throughout the Roman Empire with penalties for non-compliance. The regulation of the laity became largely passive in this season. They were largely active before, but when we made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, we gave power to bishops, we gave power to those who stood behind pulpits and the laity became largely passive. Or what we see in the book of Acts and through the church as it spreads 3% a year for 300 years is a very active laity understanding. They've been called by God, understanding uh, that the spread of the Christian faith involved them practicing hospitality, them heralding the word of God. Then, then we kind of, we restricted it to some professionals I don't think we meant to do that. I think that's the way it played out. Then the division of the globe into Christians and heathens, right? And this led to all sorts of really embarrassing things for us, wars and, and all sorts of horrific things that many of us still to this day don't want to own. But I, that's another sermon for another day. And I'm not here to start a fight. I'm just here to preach this sermon. Uh, and then to justify almost all of this, we leaned on the Old Testament. To justify all of this, we leaned on the Old Testament. Now, uh, the church enjoyed this seat of power for close to 1,200 years. All right, so for close to 1,200 years, we make the rules, we decide what's good, we decide what's bad, we decide, we tell the government, this is what's right, this is what's good, our laws should reflect these things, and the government was like, you're right, that sounds good, let's do that. Now, that's a pretty privileged seat, isn't it? I mean, that's pretty stunning. When you think about where we are right now, this is stunning, All right? When Dan Cathy can't say we support marriage between a man and woman without the New York Times writing an article on the invasion of bigotry into New York City. It's a chicken sandwich with pickles, Right, it's not, right, it's not kind of, it doesn't have behind, it's not some kind of chemical in it that's gonna make everybody conservative. Right, but this, this is where, I mean, if you think about where we were for 1,200 years, and then, listen, the, the way that started to get eroded was via the Enlightenment. So the Enlightenment brought about all sorts of new ideas into the hearts and minds of people, namely that the church was no longer considered the guardian of absolute ethical values. That, that's, that's new stuff. I'm telling you, for 1,200 years, the church was viewed as the ultimate authority on ethical values. And then the Enlightenment comes along and goes like, well, maybe not. And people are like, well, yeah, maybe not. And the church is seen as now another institution that purveys goods and services in a competitive market. And in fact, where you and I live right now, attendance in church is seen as one leisurely activity among others. That's certainly how it is here in Dallas. Where do you go to church because you don't belong to church anymore. You go to church. And, and that go usually means when we feel like going, this is where we go. Gosh, I meet people around here all the time that go to the village who I've never seen before. They're like, no, yeah, yeah, we come on Christians. We sit in that back right. The church has pushed more and more and more into the margins. And this is what we're feeling. See, it's a long fall. It is a long fall from this seat of power to being considered bigots. It is a long fall for us. And like to see this happen as fast as it has happened, 
has been a whirlwind for a lot of evangelicals who are really confused about what's going on and begin to cling to things that I would love if I had more time to argue we shouldn't be clinging to. So the temptation in this environment, I think, where it is assumed that we are bigots, where it is assumed that we are unloving and unkind, where it is assumed that we hate because we disagree, the temptation is just going to be to not preach prophetically, to not lovingly practice the truth, to not walk in what is true, but to retreat, conform, and be silent. And, and I want to try to encourage us today that the Bible is going to call us to live lives of boldness and to live lives of courage. And let's define courage real quick. Ambrose Redman wrote a book called No Peaceful Warrior. And, and here's how uh, Ambrose defined courage. Courage is not the absence of fear. Right, so, so if you don't feel fear, then you're not actively walking in courage, right? Because you've got to have fear present to walk in courage. There's got to be something I'm afraid of, and then I'm going to choose to not give into that fear, but take a step through that fear. Ambrose goes on to say, but rather the judgment that something else is more important than fear. So I want to talk today just briefly about Christian courage. But, but what's the, here's the question I, I think we've got to answer. What's the basis of our courage? See, here's what's kind of, I, I think, um, giving us whiplash right now. Like, is the basis of our courage in these days, the history of the Southern Baptist Convention, is the um, basis of our courage, new programs, uh, new leaders. What, what's the basis of this courage? Are we looking at the horizon and we're looking at, hey, there, there seems to be a movement right here uh, around this doctrine. There's a movement of kind of youth coming into youth, coming into uh, the opportunity to kind of give their shot a go. What, what is the basis of our courage? Are there new evangelism initiatives? Are we uh, hyped that we'll have new leadership here and more, more things happening? here or is there like like what is the basis of our courage well here's here's my argument courage rooted in anything other than the glory of God will not weather where you and I are going that's that's my argument so let, let's look at this this is Romans 11. Uh, the Apostle Paul, I would just argue this way. The Apostle Paul, a uh, brilliant intellect. You don't think when I think about the Apostle Paul, I think poetry. Right, like we probably think David as, you know, the giant killing poet. But, but Paul seems kind of like real linear type A theologian, right? And, and yet here he is in the book of Romans getting so caught up in God's majesty and glory. He begins uh, this doxology. Let's look at this together. This is starting in verse 33. Oh, the depth of of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And ever. So you have the Apostle Paul looking at the vastness of God. And, and what does he say about the vastness of God? Oh, the depths, right? Like this, this thing is not thin. The glory of God is not thin. It is immense. It is incredibly 
deep. Now, our brothers and sisters throughout history have rarely enjoyed really uh, unfettered access to power like you and I are coming off of in this twilight. Again, if you go back to those first 300 years, I mean, you can read about it in Hebrews 11. You can read uh, in 1 Peter, like there's a ton of suffering. There is a ton of imprisonment sawed in two, uh, the Bible says, right? There's stuff plundered, right? This is a difficult time. And yet it's in that time that the apostle Paul is saying, look at the depths of the glory of God, that there was something in that marginalization that made them dependent and desperate on the size and immensity of God that actually wove into them a joy despite their circumstances, a joy despite their circumstances. For you and I moving from favor to fools in our lifetime, that descent in a single generation is going to tempt us to sell out and reorient in a thousand different ways. And I think if you and I don't start as best we can wrapping our minds and hearts around the immensity of God's glory, the depth of God's glory, I'm just saying thin, shallow pep rallies are not going to build up the people of God in such a way that they'll be able to weather this descent. We will need more than religious platitudes and bumper sticker Christianity if we are gonna thrive in the environment that we're inching towards. Now I say inching towards uh, as a Baptocostal. All right, so I say that knowing that the ghost can come anytime and the revival can kick out and we could be in something beyond our imagination. We have seen great awakenings before. I do not believe we are so far as to not see another one. See, brothers and sisters, the deep things of God, the immensity of God, the power, his sovereignty, his might, this is where the apostle Paul is granting strength to the church at Rome. Not in religious Platitudes. And then he goes on from there. And again, he just continues to bolster their courage. He goes on from talking about the depths of God's glory to then the depths of the riches of that glory, namely that everything that is belongs to God. There is nothing that is not God's. And so the, the Old Testament would argue it this way, a cattle on a thousand hills is his. But we don't live in an agrarian culture. At least most of us don't. Like there's little horse farms around here. But, but, but most of us, like we don't even we don't have a concept of what's going on economically there when, when somebody owns all the cattle on the hill. So I like this verse a little bit better in 2018. This is Deuteronomy 10, 14. Behold, to the Lord your God belong the heavens and the heavens of heavens and the earth with all that's in it. So I love this text because the Bible is arguing a thousand skylines on a thousand planets in a thousand universes belong to God. It's all God's. If you see it, it belongs to him. Thus is the riches of God. He has no needs. Everything is his. There is nothing that is not his. And he is not constrained by creation in order to create more riches. Where, where you and I, we are constrained. God is not constrained because he can make as much of anything as he wants out of nothing. I mean, because that's where everything came from. Nothing. So God is not like, man, I'd really like to do some work here, but we're kind of broke. I need my people to step up. I mean, how are we ever going to reach the unreached of this world if we don't have these amounts of dollars? 
Like the Trinity has never huddled up and tried to get to the bottom of having enough money to do the work of God. It's not the way this works. His wealth is undeniable. It's unbelievable because if you see it, it's his. You look through those pictures being sent down from earth from the Hubble telescope and you should just, every time you see one of those nebula, one of those, you should think, yeah, that's his. Yeah, that's his too. We're not like stumbling on to things that, that God doesn't own, that God doesn't sovereignly reign over, that God doesn't say that's mine. It's also important to note in looking at these riches that we belong to him as heirs, as adopted sons and daughters. Like that you as believers in Christ are sons and daughters of this God whose glory is this deep, whose riches are this deep. And so we've been promised a remade creation, remade bodies, a renewed reality when all things have been made new by this sovereign king who rules all, owns all, is all. I love this illustration by John Newton. John Newton said, suppose a man was going to New York to take possession of a large estate and his carriage should break down a mile before he got to the city, which obliged him to walk the rest of the way. What a fool we should think him if we saw him wringing his hands and blubbering out all the remaining mile. My carriage is broken, my carriage is broken, my carriage is broken. So oftentimes I've taught here at the village that if we could get our minds 10,000 years into the future, we could see what the Apostle Paul's talking about when he says these light and momentary afflictions. Right? It's because we, we have no creative imagination and textual understanding of what we've got coming that has us fretting about so. And this is what I meant by thinness. If all we're ever preaching about is the felt needs of humankind, and, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing to preach about those things. Those things are necessary as they are biblical. But if that's all we ever preach, and we're never preaching about the depth of God's riches and glory and might, the majesty of God, then we rob from men and women a divine imagination about what's coming for us. 10,000 years in the future, what will I possibly be able to look at in my time on earth and go, yeah, that was catastrophic. I, I wasn't gonna be able to recover from that. Paul's understanding of what was coming for him was the thing that bolstered his courage to the point where he had to be just the most frustrating man alive. If you hated Christianity, right? To live as Christ, to die as gain, what do you do with that guy? Will you torture him? Well, then he gets all excited about being tortured and converts the guy torturing him while he's torturing. I mean, what do you do with this man? Nothing, why? Because he has this picture. I do not compare this current difficulty with the future glory that is to come. The future glory that is to come. And then I think this is really important for us coming upon this convention, but the glory of God gazing upon the depths of God's riches, the depths of God's glory should also humble us as a people. Look back in the text. I know we've, I think, covered like six words of it, but here. Uh, oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Now, listen, this should humble us, right? Uh, oh, the, the wisdom and knowledge of God. So, so let's chat about wisdom and knowledge. What we know is that God knows everything at a macro level, right? He, he is everywhere at once. This is the, the doctrine of omnipresence. He is everywhere, always, 
at the same time in his fullness. You tracking with me on that? Which means God is fully in Pluto as he is fully in this room, as he is fully in the Middle East, as he is fully back at your church at home, as he is fully with my wife at a wedding in Fayetteville, as he is fully with my children right now, as they are more than likely still asleep, hashtag teenagers. Right, this is God. He not just is there, he knows Everything, where every star is, he calls it by name and he tells it what to do, right? And I don't know what their names are, but God does. He knows where every speck of sand is. It's not just macro level. He also knows everything at a micro level. He knows every cell in your body and what it's doing right now. He knows every atom, every molecule, every bit of dark matter, if that even exists, He knows where it all is and he sovereignly reigns all of it. He knows how all of it fits together in such a way to serve his purposes for his glory and our joy. He knows every event of my life and how those events led to other events, led to other events, led to other events, led to other events that brought me to this moment in time. Same is true for you. He is not ignorant of your backgrounds. He knows how every little moment of every one of our stories has led us to this very moment, leading us to what's next. This is God's knowledge and wisdom, and he makes the smartest of us look like fools. Right? He makes the smartest of us look like fools. And if you want a kind of a refresher course in that, just go read the last three chapters of Job, where God says, hey, all right, you got all these questions. Dress for action like a man. I'll ask you some questions. Like we can chuckle at that. That would not have been a funny moment for Job. Right? Like, why would you, God? How is this possible, God? Why would you? And then God's like, okay. I mean, you seem to be a smart man, Job. Let me ask you some questions. Where were you? Where were you? What do you think about? Where were you? How did you, right? And then I wasn't, I don't know, I'm not, right? It's just this like terrifying moment where God's like, okay, I'll, let me ask the questions for a bit. I love that chapter in regards to orienting our hearts. Now, through all of this, the cross of Jesus Christ bids me to believe in his kindness regardless of what my backstory is. Uh, I, man, I have had peaks and I have had some significant valleys, And God has been sovereign over them both. There is nothing that has befallen my life that did not pass through the hands of God. We we see God's capacity to stop things and we see God's capacity to allow things that he hates. Right, I I love, I even quoted uh, this week to a a friend where uh, Abimelech, you know, he's got this hot new wife and he's really excited about consummating that marriage. An angel of the Lord shows up like, nope, you're not going to get to sin against God. Abimelech, he's like, whoa, no, 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 that, that's the guy. The guy told me that. I didn't, I didn't know. So the God can restrain, but he also oftentimes allows. And not because he's a bully, but because he's a surgeon. There's a difference between someone who stabs you in the back and a surgeon who with a scalpel cuts open in order to remove a disease that is going to kill you if he doesn't. So, so this, that God knows, it should, should create a deep humility in the people of God, a quickness to repent and own. A, a quickness to say, I didn't see, I couldn't see, I didn't know, please forgive. And then look where it keeps going. Verse 34 follows it up with, for who has known the mind of the Lord and counseled him. Now, we know some of the mind of the Lord, right? 
We know some of the mind of the Lord because God has revealed that mind to us, but let's not pretend that if you memorize the scripture, you could lecture God or help him out with anything. Right? You memorize it, Genesis to Revelation, you can't make an appointment with the Lord and go, hey, this thing you're doing, this thing you're doing right now, I just, I've got a better idea. Just think about it, just talk about it you know, among the triune nature of yourself and, and then get back with me. But I, here's the thing, I was reading in Genesis and then I found this little verse in Exodus and here's what I think you should do, right? No, you don't have enough information to lecture the Lord. Like I, the way the Bible talks about us is, it's not like, you know that phrase, you know, here today, gone tomorrow? The Bible didn't give us that, right? Here today, gone today. It's what the Bible says, like dew on the grass, like you're gone by lunch. So you've got this infinite God who has always been and will always be. And, and our view of things is seconds. So right, this creates a posture of humility, not a, a posture of braggadociousness. You're here like two seconds. What could you possibly know other than what he's revealed? Of course, God's gonna confuse us at times. He's eternal. We're not. I confuse my kids all the time by saying, you can't do that. It makes no sense to them how that could be for their good. But because I'm 44 and they're nine, I just, I've got a better view of things. Now take that and multiply it times a billion and we're still not there. This is the immensity of the knowledge of God. We will not counsel him. And then look at this. Uh, who has given a gift to him? Uh, I just have to believe this is a legalist's worst nightmare. What are you going to give to God that's not already his? You think about this because many of us try to put God in our debt and that will almost always flare when we suffer. Right? Most of us think that we have been good Christians Right? And because we've been good Christians, when bad things happen, God has somehow abandoned us or tricked us or not given us what we deserve. And I'll give you that last one. But I won't give you anything before that because you don't have anything to give him that's not already his. This is what makes salvation by grace through faith so unbelievably amazing. I'm gonna give you my wealth. I appreciate that, it was already mine, but I appreciate that. Sixpence none the richer. It's either a band or a C.S. Lewis quote, depending on your age, <laughs> right? Um, you know, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna just dedicate my children to you. Well, man, I sure appreciate the sentiment there, but I, I see them, I actually saw them long before you did. Knew their names long before you figured out what you were gonna name them. And I'm gonna give you my life. <laughs> God's like, okay, well, I actually purchased your life. And, and have made you righteous in my sight, not by your work, but by my grace. So rest. The work that will not be burned off on the final day is the work that I accomplish through you, not what you accomplish for me. Who can give him, who can put God in their debt? No one. And then I love this, for from him and through him and to him are all things. Now, this is the summarization of everything we just read. And it's that same plea to, hey, look at him. I mean, look at his size, look at his immensity. What could you, what should you be afraid of? What can happen to you? 
right? This is that great Romans 8 passage that we love. We've got to skip a couple of verses there about predestination, foreknowledge, all that. That wigs us out. But let's jump past that and, and let's just look at the, the text that say that we get to cry out, Abba, Father, and then who's going to bring a charge against God's elect? Well, angels and demons, nakedness and sword, famine and like, and, and what Paul's doing there is, have you seen my dad? Are you serious? You're bringing a sword against me? Have you seen my dad? You seen my Abba? You seen my father? You're coming with a sword? You're coming with famine? Demonic powers? You seen my dad? Think I'm afraid of that? Man, my father's already conquered all of that. That's cute that you brought your sword. All of it is his. Why? To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is the message of the Bible. <laughs> this is that the more you and I try to make this a book about us, the more our courage will grow thin, our confusion about what's going around us will rule our hearts, and fear will take root, and we'll have to make some decisions about softening what this book says because it's not popular. Um, brothers and sisters, history has got to teach us that to punt the Bible in order to try to reach people for Jesus Christ cannot, will not, does not work because Jesus becomes something out of our imagination rather than what he is. He and he alone is the central character of the universe. I love this quote. Uh, this is from a sermon by Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, the sermon's entitled, Our God is Able. It seemed as though I heard an inner voice saying, stand up for righteousness, stand up for truth. God will be at your side forever. Almost at once, my fears began to pass from me. The outer situation remained the same, but God had given me inner calm. Three nights later, our home was bombed. Strangely enough, I accepted the word of the bombing calmly. My experience with God had given me new strength and trust. I know now that God is able to give us the interior resources to face the storms of life. So what does Christian courage look like? Three things, very quickly. Very, very quickly. Uh, the first is Christian courage looks like Christian integrity. We walk in uprightness. Look at me. We don't walk in perfection because we cannot walk in perfection. The perfection that you and I profess is the perfection of Christ, never our own perfection. When unbelievers, who by the way are far friendlier than a lot of believers these days, when unbelievers talk to me about the hypocrisy that they have seen among Christians, um, my counterplay to that has always been, yes, so you should come and join us. You should consider because what we're celebrating is not that we're perfect people. If you've gotten that sense from us that we think we're perfect or we think we're better than, or think you meant, you, then, then man, we are not living in a way that's right and good before our living God because what we're here to profess is that God is good, gracious, and kind and we are trophies of that grace in our silliness and we are being sanctified over time much more slowly than any Christian I know wants. We all want to be sanctified more quickly than we're being sanctified. So integrity means owning and repenting, sometimes publicly. 
owning our shortcomings, owning our failures, and walking in ongoing repentance. Was this not Luther's first thesis that all of the Christian life is one of repentance? Which means you don't repent once and then never do it again, but that every day you're going to have the opportunity to grow, opportunity to own, opportunity to repent and rejoice and worship in the extravagant grace of God. So real, real quick, do you, is there someone in your life right now that just kind of wears you out? Just like they keep doing the same thing over and over again. You're like, I got to be done with this dude. I'm, he's wearing me out. Go ahead. You can confess. You don't have to raise your hands like we're Baptists. I know we are, right? You can just like, like almost like a charismatic. You can get a little wave in there. Right. So now think about this. So now think about the steadfast, the has said love of God, because you've been doing the same nonsense for decades. And the Lord has not punted on you. And the Lord has not gone, I need space. I need some boundaries from this guy before I light him up. No, no, no. He, he keeps running towards. He keeps moving too. I preached last weekend on this very stage that, that we should all look at the apostle Peter and rejoice. We look at Paul and then we feel bad about ourselves. Look at Peter and be glad. Right? I mean, over and over again, that brother hits it out of the park in such a way that if you were walking with him, you'd be like, this brother will never stumble again. He just, Jesus himself just blessed him. Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Peter. God has revealed this to you. Of course, he calls him the devil like six verses later. <laughs> and then Peter on a camp high says, hey, even if everyone else denies you, I will not, I will die. And Jesus is like, yeah, okay, Peter. Love your zeal, brother. But by tomorrow morning, I'm going to give you, you know, that good week and a half after camp that you feel real good. By tomorrow morning, before the alarm goes off three times, and the last time will be some really non-Baptisty words at the end. All right? And, and then Jesus restores them. And then when you, you have the sermon at Pentecost. Look, man, that, that brother could preach. Spirit of God drew thousands and thousands of people and formed the church in Jerusalem. And that we read in Galatians that, Peter stumbled again, became just actively racist against the Gentiles. And God just keeps moving towards him, just keeps moving towards him, keeps moving towards him. This is good news. Christian courage looks like integrity, but it also looks like devotion. And when I'm talking about devotion, I'm talking specifically about devotion at the lay level. I'm not just talking about devotion from our pulpits, although God help us. I'm talking about devotion in the priesthood of believers. God's big plan is not for all of us to be in ministry. God's big plan is for you to live faithfully where you are in the domain that God created you to operate in. Right? Have you ever realized, have you, maybe, maybe you've seen this, like people have like bents early on. Like my father-in-law, math just came easy to him. Like he just sees numbers, they're easy. They're, I mean, he can just do it. You know who cannot, should not, shouldn't even try? Me, like whatever aptitude that is, God just left out altogether. All right, so I'm gonna give him just enough numbers to help him navigate the Bible, do his own personal budget, and then he's gonna need help the rest of his life. Well, those aptitudes are about God kind of placing you in these domains for the glory of his name. This is what you're reading about in Psalm 139. This is what you're reading about in Acts 17. The lady must not have a passive role in the life of the church. And then lastly, and I need to finish, Christian courage looks like hospitality. <laughs> looks like hospitality. Um, years ago, while well, my in-laws got my daughter horse lessons, 
that's ended up costing me a lot of money. So thank you, in-laws. So Audrey started riding horses, and then uh, the woman that was giving her lessons was just like, she's got a real gift, which if you've got kids in a, in a sport of some kind, that just means we're going to need more money and time from you. Uh, your child's really gifted because you can't go, I don't, I don't, I don't think they are. I think you're making, you can't do that. It's really a racket. I'm not even angry about it. I've just kind of figured it out. I was like, that is brilliant. And so I, I can't really train her uh, for where she needs to go, but I know this woman and, and this woman might be able to, to train her. And so, you know, Lauren and I start doing some due diligence and it turns out that um, she, she was this pot smoking lesbian. And then I'm just like, okay, got my nine-year-old daughter, a pot smoking lesbian and a love for horses. Okay, so we meet her. We begin to have her in our home. Single mom began to have her join us for Christmas, began to have her and her daughter join us at Thanksgiving, began to just open up our home to her. About a year and a half later, on our front porch, my wife leads Lisa in a prayer of faith It's a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, here's what's great. She had the equality sticker on the back of her car, and and my daughter was always like, we should just sneak out there and take that thing. I was like, okay, uh, let me me tell you what's going to be better than that. What's going to be better than that is when she takes it off. And and Lisa, just just about, probably in my home more than I am, uh, still just a fixture in our lives, rough around the edges. She probably will be till the end of time. But the Lord's done a profound work in her life. And all we did was open up our home. We didn't go, oh my gosh, pot smoking lesbian. We, have to, we can't have anything to do with her. We've got to keep her away from our kids. We've got to, no, no, no. We just like, hey, yeah, you, she can't spend the night at your house, but, but come on over to ours. Hey, come have dinner with us. Come be in our lives. Let's get to know you. And man, when we began to hear her story, hear her background, our heart was broken with empathy and compassion. And every weekend she sits right over here in this little section right here and and takes notes and then has all kinds of questions for us. Christian courage looks not like withdrawal, but active engagement through hospitality. Opening our homes, sharing our tables, walking in gladness. This is why you must not participate in the increased hostility of our day. Like I've just pled with the village church. Can we not do this thing on Twitter and Facebook where we're not thinking about brothers and sisters in Christ who would land differently than where we land? So I don't know if you know this, but not all Democrats worship demons and sacrifice babies in their basement. I don't know if you knew that or not, but there are men and women who love Jesus Christ and they just land on the other side of the political spectrum. So every time we get amped up and post something on our Facebook that that really characterizes a, a position and if we're honest, is sophomoric, we participate in a kind of division that displeases God instead of walking in that. Now we can disagree and still be kind We can seek to understand because, brother, I have sought to, because, man, there are some things that my brothers and sisters in Christ support, like, get behind, that confuse me. But, man, I ain't trying to put them on blast on social media. I'm trying to sit down and understand. You know why? Because I'm 44 and I don't know everything. I've got some passion. I'm a passionate man about almost everything. 
but I don't know. So I want to try to understand, especially if you love Jesus like I love, you love the word of God like I love, I need you to help me understand this. What if we practiced hospitality, gave benefit of the doubt, and stopped vilifying everyone who didn't line up with precision on everything we thought theologically and everything we thought sociologically? How crazy would that be? It would almost be like we were acting distinctively Christian. Crazy. Let's pray. Father, give us courage. Just pray that we wouldn't shrink back in the hostility of our day. Just pray instead, Father, that you would give us comfort in your grace, joy in the walk. I pray for open homes and open tables. Pray for generosity and kindness. Pray that we might distinctively live out our faith at work, in our neighborhoods, in the places we play, among the parents of our children's friends. Help us not shrink back and be destroyed. And thank you for the promise that we are not of those who do such things. Embolden us. We'll need it. It's scary out there. I thank you that we have an empathetic high priest who knows it's scary to be us. It's for your beautiful name I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the ERLC podcast. To subscribe, visit ERLC.com, iTunes, or Google Podcast. Tune in next week as we hear from Jackie Hill Perry.